Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and today I'm joined by Kyle Firefield. He's actually a returning guest. Last time he was talking about liturgies, the habits and patterns that shape who we are and how we're formed. And this time we're actually going to be talking about something that's sort of first cousins with the idea of liturgies. This time we're going to be talking about thinking routines. Now, in today's discussion, we're going to draw heavily on the work of Project Zero, which is an initiative of the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thinking routines have made a huge difference to my educational practice, and they're really about providing students time and space to get better at thinking. If we want to develop skillful thinkers, and we do, then that's going to take explicit instruction, isn't it? Students often don't come up with complex and nuanced ways of thinking all on their own. We really want the young people that we're educating to think well. We want their thoughts to be clear and well-reasoned and discerning. But really good thinking doesn't happen by accident. Actually, really good thinking happens the same way we get really good anything else, doesn't it? Really good basketball or swimming or cooking. It takes practice. So as we discuss these thinking routines, I hope you find it an immensely practical discussion. I hope you're able to come away with a few pedagogical moves that you can take straight into your educational practice. And of course, you should know, as always, before we hit record, Kyle and I prayed for you. If you're an educator or a parent, we pray that you may be able to lead those who you're educating as they develop their thinking capabilities. And if you're a student, we pray that your thinking would be clear, hospitable and culture-shaping. Well, Kyle Firefield, welcome back to the Christian Education Podcast. Good to be back. It's good to have you back. Now, listeners of the podcast will know that uh, you're presently working at Calvin Christian School. Uh, you're in many ways, in fact, in every way, my boss. So I, I work within the humanities department in the secondary school, and you're the, the head of the humanities department. Um, would you mind sharing with the listeners what it was that you... So you went to school. After that, you went to uni. If I'm right... You went to uni twice. Uh, so what was it that you studied at university before you became a teacher? So undergrad was in history and English literature and was considering, do I stay on kind of honours, thinking academia, but then that looked like a very long road. Would I even have the chops to do such a thing? I don't know. So then I got very practical and thought, I think the next best step would be education at the secondary level rather than the tertiary level. Um, And so midway through that history, English then started doing a master's of teaching, Uh, did that, came out, as we talked about last time, went into a school teaching history, Christian studies. And one of the things that was a bit of a gripe for me is that I was teaching Christian studies, um, and by this stage, a majority of Christian studies, um, but to teach history I needed a certain set of qualifications, and yet I was teaching Christian studies uh, and had not, without any sort of qualification really, to do that. And so I, I wanted to pull those things into alignment, um, and so I ended up talking to my head of department at that school, and he recommended, because he had studied there, a place called Regent College in Vancouver, which is a graduate school, um, evangelical, uh, of theology. And so we, as a family, I had two little kids, uh, they were three and one, um, and me and my wife, we went over there and lived for a year in Vancouver and studied at Regent. 
which has um, a fairly unique, I guess, emphasis on, on training people up and educating them to go back into the world with that education. Um, and so over at Regent, I specialised, my concentration was in history, um, history and theology, um, as opposed to, say, like biblical studies, that sort of thing. So my concentration was history and theology. And then, um, yes, yeah, so that sort of trained me up to go back into schools uh, and teach those things. Is that a process you would recommend? I know a lot of teachers who love education um, look at the idea of being re-educated themselves or further education with starry eyes. They really like the idea. Is that something that you would recommend for other educators to perhaps take some time out and specifically dedicate it to sharpening your tools so that when you're, when you're back in your uh, educational um, occupation, your vocation, you can do it with even more knowledge and expertise? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, that year for our family and just as a family was probably to this point the highlight of our lives that year abroad um, just in a context of, of learning together uh, both as a family but also kind of academically and yeah I mean you get to a point where you feel like you know your curriculum you've done your thing you've got some lessons prepped all is well I could do that from here on in and I'd be, and I'd be home and hosed um, and yet yeah just going to do that another level of study just blew so many of my assumptions out of the water and showed me a whole bunch of gaps that I had in my understanding of things that needed to be filled. Uh, and I think, yeah, my teaching and my, the programs that I would teach now are very different, I think, because of the learning that occurred, particularly over that year when we were living on campus, um, studying together, yeah. I'm always a big advocate of teachers putting themselves in positions where they're unfamiliar with content, they're having to learn, they're having to step up because that's of course what we're welcoming students into every single day. Now, my example is very far from going and studying at a theological college in Canada for a year, but I was recently reversing a trailer at Bunnings and I sucked at it so badly. Yeah. Um, and it made me realise that there are, there are certain, like, and I was driving to Bunnings and I was going, oh, crumbs. I really hope I can get a nice wide turning circle so I don't have to reverse this bad boy. Uh, the Lord in his providence decided to teach me a lesson instead. And I was, I was in front of a couple of dozen people trying to slot this thing back to pick up some mulch. And it was a profoundly humbling experience. But I, again, I realised um, many students are actually coming into our classrooms and uh, they're looking at sitting down and working on um, a, an independent inquiry project the same way I'm driving to Bunnings thinking I hope I don't have to back this sucker up, you know. So actually actually getting out there, having to learn new things, having to, um, having to grow our capacity, learn skills, understand new knowledge, it's great for the educator. Um, it helps us sharpen our tools. It also puts us in the position of a student every once in a while. And that, that cannot be a bad thing. So much, yeah, so much to be said for having just intentionally going and learning new things. Having to learn to snowboard as a 25-year-old in front of nine-year-old shredders was, a, yeah, again, a very humbling experience. And just reminds you, like, yeah, your learning is hard and it's emotional, I think, was my key insight from putting myself out there again <laughs> in that sense. It is, it's really emotional and um, to neglect that as a teacher would be, I think, um, a mistake. Yeah.
it's very easy to look at the students and say, look guys, don't get down on yourself, right. okay? You, you, you can't APA reference properly, you shredded the referencing on your assignment. Don't get down on yourself, don't, don't let your face drop, it's fine, we'll just learn how to do it properly. Um, and then you're backing your trailer up in Bunnings or you're trying to hit the snow on a half pipe and you're going, I'm such a turkey, why, this, why did I come out here? This was a huge mistake, I'm never doing this again. Um, yeah, it's, it's a profoundly um, uh, beneficial experience putting yourself back in the position of a student. Now, in previous editions with, uh, of the podcast, I had a discussion with Simon Matthews about school culture. And we remarked that school culture is an incredibly powerful thing. If you've got a school with a great culture, People are signing their kids up as soon as they're born. They want them in the early learning. You know, there um, are huge wait lines. The classes are always full. That you attract the highest quality teachers and get students who are the most motivated to learn. A good culture is great. A bad culture, um, well, you can smell it a mile away, can't you? you? There's a low teacher self sort of efficacy around the place. People feel like uh, students and teachers alike feel like it's just Groundhog Day. You're just getting in there, you're doing the same thing, you're not moving the needle at all. The school culture, the thing that is either so good or so bad, it can be so hard to define. But in my meeting and talking with you, um, you were sharing with me some work done by uh, the Harvard Graduate School of Education, a mob called Project Zero, which has actually sought to delineate or, or separate out the different uh, aspects of culture. So would you mind sharing with me what exactly they're on about over at Project Zero? Yeah, so they were one of the crew who I was fortunate enough in my, my previous school to get a fair bit of contact with, the, the people from Project Zero at Harvard. Um, some key names in there, if, you, if you're looking up, Ron Richard, uh, Mark Church, David Perkins, are three guys who've, who've written a lot and a lot on YouTube and that sort of thing. And the fascinating thing about them, certainly as I've looked back on it, is that I think they seem to have had the same insight into particularly cultures of thinking that a guy like James K.A. Smith has had in terms of the formation of, of, of Christian um, loves in the world. And that David I. Smith, who, who you know and I know a lot of people in Christian education are aware of, um, the insight that he's had in the classroom that cultures are not formed just by telling people this is what the culture should be, um, that unless you're dealing with all of the, the little moments in, in a learner's experience, in a person's experience, um, a culture doesn't grow. And so they're, and they're particularly looking at cultures of thinking, and they, they boil down the eight cultural forces that define a classroom, or the, the classrooms, and then by extension the school, um, and I'll, I'll rattle them off just to give you a bit of a framework. So they talk about time, what you give time to is a cultural force, modelling from the teacher and from each other about um, who we are as thinkers and learners, the language that gets used, so what are the sorts of phrases that get repeated, do you share a language around the school, around learning, around thinking, the environment, so that's kind of the, the physical environment, the space that facilitates thinking, the interactions, um, the the respect and the value that you show each other, I guess the intentional way that you set people up to interact with each other, that's a cultural force. Um, opportunities, so what sort of opportunities do students get? If you want them to be critical thinkers and you only ever give them recall questions, um, that's going to set a culture. 
and expectations is the seventh one. Um, yeah, how do you, by the things that you say, the things that you do, the feedback do you, that you give, um, what what do students seem to think is expected of them in terms of the quality, in terms of quantity, all those things. Um, and finally, routines is, is the last one. Um, specific, intentional, um, yet routinized um, moves that are supposed to over time become habits. Um, so they, that's their general take, that if you want to shape a culture, you have to deal, kind of like we were talking about last time, with all the little bits of a liturgy of a person's experience in the classroom, in the school as a whole, over the course of a day or a year. Yeah, there's some really strong connection there, isn't there? Yeah. We talked last time about a liturgy being uh, a habit or practice that's laden with meaning. It's just it's loaded up with a, an understanding of uh, who you are and, and what you're here to do. As, as Christians, we're seeking to shape our passageway through time in such a way that reflects that we're citizens of the kingdom of Christ and that Christ is Lord over all. And our movements around the school, our use of our lessons and our days and our weeks and months and terms and years uh, are, are meant to be shaped with reference to the Lordship of Christ and, and our presence in his kingdom. It's interesting that a mob like Project Zero coming from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, they've identified routines. Would you say there's there's quite a close similarity between their understanding of routines uh, and some of the ideas we're talking about when we're talking about liturgies. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it, I mean, that's, it's not a connection that I had, um, that had really dawned on me until I was looking back over my, um, my kind of research into James and David Smith, that they've had, they've had the same kind of insight that this stuff that happens often at the subconscious level, um, that, that bottom-up formation is really what shapes people. Um, that the, the types of thinking, the types of people you want to get out, um, you, have to, you have to come in at, at the base level, at that level of kind of ritual and habit, um, and reshape that before you, get, um, you start churning out the sorts of things long-term that you are after. It's funny, we talk about shaping culture and immediately often our mind goes to we're going to need a week-long camp with the students to reset this culture. We're going to need to get the parents in for one or two nights. We might need to advertise a new position within the school, head of people and culture, that sort of thing. Um, And if you could get a good school culture, that would be worth then the $150,000, $250,000 that all that would entail. Um, but the really exciting thing, we talked last episode about high-value propositions, the really exciting thing is the steps we make towards that good culture are not, are not tens of thousands of dollars in the budget. It's, it's tens of seconds out of our classroom. It's, it's minutes here and there that we're repeating for the long haul. That's actually the thing that's going to be shaping our culture in a way that we desire to shape it. Right, and it's, it's the culture comes from the things that you are already doing. Um, you are doing something with the physical environment in your classroom. You're saying some things again and again. You're routinizing some habits and formations. You're, um, you're setting students up to interact in some way every, every day, every lesson. Um, and I think, yeah, the power of that is to go, now that's where culture is made. It's not, it's not this top-down thing. It's, it's a bottom-up growth. 
I realized myself just the other week, I was inadvertently catechizing my students um, by, by always pairing the phrase nice with quiet. Mm. All right, if we could have it just nice and quiet now. Um, and of course, there are many times where you don't want your classroom to be quiet during collaborative work, during group discussions. Um, there are, you could write a list as long as your arm of times where it's actually really frustrating as a teacher if your classroom is quiet. And that was just a classic, after we talked about our, uh, a liturgical audit, I realized in my practice, I, I'm always talking about nice and quiet. Is that, is that really, does that really represent my idea of flourishing for these students? Is it always nice when they're quiet? Um, and is there a way I can more accurately use my language um, to show that I actually expect different things at different times um, and that if you're a loud person, for example, that's actually something worth celebrating too. It's not, un it's not not nice if you're loud and it's not automatically brilliant if you're quiet. That was the result of the liturgical audit and I, was, I sort of shocked myself with what came up there. It's an insight that I think you had as well when we were working with um, a trainee teacher, pairing the language of prayer with just. Um, I might just pray for us, which suggests that it's this kind of slightly inconvenient thing that it really doesn't matter heaps, but I might just do it. Um, and yet those little, uh, those little moments can send cultural messages that are quite powerful. I think if I could, if I could take six inches off my height but in doing so, guarantee that no one ever used the word just before prayer or pray. I'd do it. I'd do it in a heartbeat. I'd give my left hand for that, Kyle, because um, prayer is truly core business. And we're <laughs> yeah, I might just pray, or um, I hope you don't mind, I'm just going to pray. That, sort of, that diminutive language really betrays what we're actually doing in that moment. So we've got, we've got our sort of cultural forces of the school or the classroom. Here, we want to hone in on routine. Something uh, one of your biggest imports to me as a developing teacher has been the use of um, thinking routines. These have come out of Project Zero as well, and these completely revolutionised the way I taught. I was I was on the liturgy bandwagon before I was on the thinking routine bandwagon, but the two married together so well that they were able to be seamlessly integrated into my practice. Tell us a little bit about thinking routines. The, the key insight for Project Zero on this one is that you, if you want to develop skillful thinking, then you need to teach that quite explicitly, that, that students aren't just gonna start pulling good thinking moves unless um, they, are, they are firstly shown how and then given lots of chances to develop those habits. So, for, for example, a favorite routine of mine is, uh, is the Project Zero routine called Claim Support Question. And you can find all of these online, by the way. That's not any sort of secret Gnostic wisdom. It's all out there for you to use as you wish. Um, claim Support Question, which is, and this is a thing you do all the time. You put some information out there, uh, a bit of evidence, a suggestion. Um, that's the claim. And then what you ask students to do is to support it, which I think is formationally a good thing, that if we want to honour people, show them respect, um, 
then you want to steel man where possible their arguments. Um, so I don't know if you've got you've got Marx um, and, and his ideas about history and how the world works. Support it. What do you see around you that makes you think that might be true? What do you see as the good points, the strengths, the evidence? And then question it. What is it about your experience of the world, the evidence you see here, here, and here that makes you question the claim? Um, and the idea is you use that thinking routine enough, it becomes a habit. It becomes a, a, a reflex that when someone throws an idea out there, automatically, hopefully, your students are going, okay, what is it? How can I steel man that? What's the strongest possible way you could put that argument? Okay, now what makes me question that? Um, that hopefully leads to, to skillful thinking. So you, you train the move, you, you sort of routine the move, and then hopefully you can sort of move the scaffold away over time such that that's just a part of now their repertoire. So when you're talking about a steel man there, I'm assuming that's in dialogue with the understanding of a, a straw man. When someone has said their argument um, and you would try to seek to, to counter their argument, to argue against them by arguing against an inferior version. It's, it's, it's as a straw man is to a human being. It's, it's got the form, but none of the substance. Yeah. Um, and, and they might as well turn around and say, well, yeah, um, I'm glad you dismissed that idea. I would also dismiss that idea. That's not my argument. Yeah. Um, and of course, in today's discourse, people are often talking about how polarized things have become. And a common uh, first thinking move when we see something we don't agree with is that person must have rocks in their head. Mm. You know, where did they go to school that they would be thinking something like that? How do you get so dumb? And actually forming students to say, A, I'm going to understand their argument. B, I'm going to actually see if I can put some more meat on the bones um, and, and then see what then, having made the strongest possible form of that argument, how do, I, um, how do I critique that in a way that's consistent with my worldview? Um, so that's a claim support question routine. Yeah, and I think it's, a, it's just a great way of loving your neighbour as yourself. I think we would like to think that if someone was arguing against Christianity, they would allow us to put our argument as strongly as possible and give us back the strongest possible formulation of that up before telling us that it's stupid. Um, I think that's part of what we're aiming to do with a claim support question. In many of the circles, the Christian education circles, you'll come across an idea called uh, intellectual hospitality. Um, and a move as simple as this claim support question is going to train people to be able to exercise intellectual hospitality, to be, able to, to be able to welcome people in, welcome their, their ideas. We're not pulling up the drawbridge as soon as we see something doesn't fit neatly within our categories, but um, we're welcoming them in. I, um, I don't know if you've listened to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Great podcast, and they're still updating the feed. Um, even after the show finished, they've still got more and more there, and they had an, an interview with Tim Keller recently about the whole Mars Hill situation. One of the things that caught my ear with Tim, he was saying he was seeking to engage with those in his culture in such a way that it shows that uh, not only does he know what the unbelieving culture in New York, he planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, not only does he know it, he said, I, I want to show them I've read what you've read. I've actually read it more deeply than you've read it and I can show you why it doesn't work. And if we're seeking to train students not only to get 
um, to, to sort of tick the right boxes and get into the right degrees or the right apprenticeships and get the right jobs, if we're seeking to, to make them culture shapers, to, to truly influence the world, then they're gonna, be need to, they're gonna need to be people who can do a little bit more than, you've got rocks in your head, mate. You know, you know, we're gonna to need to do better. And it's a classic example. So what exactly, uh, how long would that routine take you if you've implemented it in your class? Well, the good thing about routines is they can be as long or as punchy as you need them to be. Um, so I'd, I'd typically take 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes if it's something a bit more dense um, of here's the claim or here's a bit of evidence, have a look at that. Take five, what do you know that supports it? What do you know that makes you question it? And then pull it together. Let's have a, let's have a chat about what we found. Maybe get it up on the board, that sort of thing. Um, but that could be that could be an entire lesson if you if you had a lot of material to cover or you wanted to give more time to bring more evidence in. Um, it could also just be sort of off the top of your head. What are your first impressions about this thing? What makes you support it? What makes you question it? Moving on. They'll take often as much as you can give them. Yeah. Those sorts of routines, which is which is fantastic. It allows you to um, be fairly flexible. The good thing about a routine also is if you go crumbs, I've just finished my lesson and there's 10 minutes of my lesson left. You know, I, I've, I've got way too much lesson at the end of my content. What do I do here? Um, you, you've got those routines in your back pocket. It's as simple as the three words. The good thing about a routine is um, if, you do it, if you do it a dozen times with the students and you, they hear you say claim support question, all they're gonna be doing is looking for a quote on the board and then they'll go from there. So it, it really is like, like any routine, it becomes automatic, but just because it's automatic doesn't mean it's not immensely beneficial. Indeed, and, and the, the automatic nature of it is kind of the goal. Like that's, that's almost where you're hoping to get to, that, they're, that what you think are good thinking moves are being done automatically, um, that you're not having to scaffold it every time, um, that over time that just becomes, um, yeah, it's a reflex. One of the things that I like about these um, thinking routines is that the website, if you go to Harvard Project Zero and you type in thinking routines, the website is insanely well resourced. So you've got a full PDF. So I'll, I'll link in the show notes all the routines we talk about. You've got a full PDF which details step-by-step -step instructions of how to do this routine. If it's the cut of your jib, you've also got it in Spanish, so that works pretty well too uh, if, that's, if that's what you're after. Um, one, of the, one of the routines that I would use oh, at least every week with every class is the think, pair, share routine. Now this was really formative in shaping my understanding of how students work. Often, unfortunately, if you're being a, a lazy teacher, oh, lazy is a pejorative term, if um, I'll say that when I was first starting as a teacher, I would often, as I'm doing my direct instruction, I pause for a question and say, all right, who can tell me this? And you get a hand up or two. It's often the same characters of varied quality as well. They're not necessarily getting the right answer. And what I realized upon reading some of this Project Zero material is that I was asking students to self-select, not on their capacity to think, but on the speed of their cognition. So not even accuracy, just speed. Um, and so there's, there was a whole lot of wisdom in the room that wasn't there, that I wasn't able to draw upon and bring out for the whole class to see because they just weren't quick out of the blocks. And if you talk about small moves that you do in the classroom carrying a bigger message, 
What's that showing? It's showing that I value speed of cognition over accuracy. And one might argue that's the whole pathology with social media and the modern discourse is that um, accuracy is unimportant and it's just speed. And um, I was subtly reinforcing that. So the think, pair, share routine says, all right, I, I use one minute chunks. Think, you've got one minute just to think about the question I've asked you or just to think about the evidence I've given you. Then in your table groups, you've got one minute to discuss your thoughts. So automatically, if I've got a couple of um, cognitive diesel engines in my classroom who are taking a while to warm up, but once they get there, they've got a lot of talk, well, that's great for them because they're actually able to contribute to a group discussion having considered their opinion. And after that, finally, we bring it all back together in the share stage and it comes up on the board. We create a big uh, collaborative diagram or uh, piece over the board um, detailing the ideas of the class. And that's a fantastic way to consider a, a question or a, a proposition. So the think pair shares one it, I've used quite a bit. And that one seems to have made its way into the culture. Like I see that in a lot of places that I've that I've been. Think pair share is just sort of done. And the, I mean, the good thing about it is that you are. We're often doing this. You you have some information and you want students to respond in some way. What think pair share does, as you said, it works against the kind of the speed culture, but it also says. Um, it's not what just what you think that is important. Um, what does your neighbour reckon? Have a chat to them and have some that kind of intellectual hospitality. This classroom is a is a joint enterprise. It's not just you versus everyone else in here. Let's see who can get the best mark. Um, we're we're collaborating. We're interested in what each other has to say. Um, so it has that formational little edge as well, which is great. Give us another one, Kyle. So you've used a number of these different routines. Um, as we as we look at closing, can you give me one more thinking routine that you've found beneficial in your practice as an educator? Can I give you a couple more than one? Can I give you a few? Give me a few. All right. The so when I've um, Ron Richard, who's one of the guys who's at the heart of this Project Zero stuff, he would say if you're going to use one routine, one routine alone, um, his most important one is why do you think that, or what makes you think that. He said if that becomes just a, a routine reflex in the room that when someone has an idea, you ask back, what makes you think that? If that becomes um, common practice, the quality of the thinking in the room starts notching up pretty rapidly. So I think that if there's one you're gonna take, I think Project Zero would say, what makes you think that been a key one? Um, at the start of a unit, I reckon the best one I've used is the chalk talk, which is, rather than collecting the, the understanding and the knowledge in the room by just a, all right, what does everyone reckon about this? What do we know? And everyone's, you know, or not everyone in fact, two people put their hand up and tell you the things and everyone else just stays quiet and says nothing. You have some, uh, some slightly edgy statements, some provocative statements, quotes, questions around the room on some big A3 sheets, four or five of them. Um, everyone gets a pen and the whole sort of point of it is that you don't talk. Uh, and this is great for the, for the person who knows a whole bunch, but he's never gonna start just off the bat telling people what they know from the, from the classroom. So you get their knowledge and understanding on the page. And so the first round is everyone goes around and responds to the stimulus. So you get 20, 20 or so responses in five minutes as everyone goes around the room, um, which is more visibility of student thinking than you would get just in a discussion. 
And then the second round is the students go around and that round is about responding to each other. So you, you say, yes, I agree and here's why. Or you ask a clarifying question, do you mean this? Or you can disagree, you know, I'm not sure that's true. Have you thought about X, Y, Z? Um, and so you are, you're facilitating not only getting prior knowledge out in the open, but you're facilitating student interactions immediately. And that's one of the things that also then shapes the space of our classroom. We've done chalk talks at the beginning of units or at pivotal points in our learning sequence. Um, and you're left with these brilliant artifacts as well. So you've got these A3 pieces of paper, you've got the quote in the middle and the student handwriting all over the place with ideas sort of fractaling off other people's ideas. And I found it really sets a good tone for the classroom. You've got that up there. And even if another class who doesn't, uh, who didn't do that initial activity um, comes in, they, can, they have a visual representation of learning done by other students in that room, making, making the learning and thinking visible, having it there as an example for other classrooms of how you can entertain uh, ideas, how you can be in dialogue with one another. Um, you get this great artifact at the end of the chalk talk too. Absolutely, and you can, you can reference that through the course. Remember how we asked that question and this person said that thing? You can be calling back to that. And then at the end of the course, you can get the chalk talks off the wall, put them back around and say, all right, we've now done a terms of learning. Go back through, make some new comments, add some new bits of data, challenge the things that, were, you know, that weren't fully formed at the start, that kind of thing. So I think that's a great one for the start. Um, for the end of a unit or the end of a, end of a week, end of a... Um, a topic um, I used to think, but now I think, is another great one. That is, I used to think this thing about World War II, but having learned what I've heard, I now think, and so that's either it's either deepened or it's challenged it, or it's put some new evidence on it. And then I've added a, a third little one, which is, however, I still think, which just allows students who, I don't want them to feel like they have to. Um, say, you know, my world's fully changed. If there's stuff that you thought at the start that was still true, that gives you a little chance to add that. Um, and then a fourth one you might put on there is, um, and what changed my thinking was, and that's where students might point to a particular lesson or a bit of evidence that changed their mind. Well, Kyle, it's been enlightening hearing about these uh, thinking routines from the Harvard Graduate School of Education and their Project Zero. Um, I'll make sure I include the links in the show notes for those who wish to implement them I can only uh, give them a heartily encouragement it is such a fantastic way to use your space and utilize the cultural force of routine um, so thank you for your time Kyle and, and God bless you in your uh, educational endeavors going forward thank you brother